we'll do a brief review for those who weren't here last week just to make sure that we're all at speed with the terminology that we're using. Um, very brief review because I want to try to get into something this week if I can uh, and try and get it taken care of. Um, so let's go ahead and look to the Lord with a word of prayer and we're going to get started. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to come together and sit quietly and allow the Spirit to speak now. We thank you again for your presence. We thank you for everyone who's here today. And we pray, Lord, that you'll just bless them and touch them with the words that you would have them to hear and understand. We thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. God, are, God, are you aware? We had the conversation last week with this material where we were talking about how because of our difficulty sometimes that we experience when we're having trouble, when we're having strife, when things are occurring that we don't want to happen, we will sometimes question God's presence. Now, we question God's presence even though we've been taught as believers, that we know that God is always present and always there, but we also recognize that because of our flesh, we sometimes forget at a critical moment what we are taught. Amen? We just forget. We just don't realize that. And we understand that God even knows that we are going to forget this very lesson. And because he represents that and talks about that in the Psalms. We had a psalmist in Psalm 8-4. Just as a refresher course, go ahead and turn to Psalm 8-4. We'll spend very little time with that. When we look at the psalmist and we wonder because of the things that we experience or what's going on. And we talk about God's greatness, his goodness, which is what the psalmist is referring to here in chapter In Psalm 8, in Psalm 8, he is talking about the magnificence of God. And he asks the question in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have to understand, in our human reasoning and thinking, because of God's magnificence, he is a creator of the world, he is a creator of the very universe that we sit in, And we talked about last week all the different stars and the planets and all those things. And what is it that he cares about this speck of dust on earth that is me compared to all those different magnificent things? Well, the fact of the matter is he does care about you. And we need to remind ourselves of this over and over again, especially when we are having difficulty with certain situations in our life. Do you realize that God allows things to happen in your life. He absolutely allows things to happen because you know that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, and he allows certain things to happen. Now, this gets into the discussion about his sovereignty, which we won't be spending any time with at all today because that will take us away from the lesson. But his sovereignty is what we have to take into account and we talk about who God truly is. And yet, even though he is sovereign, he knows each and every one of you. He knows all about who you are. 
Now, you may not know him as well as he knows you, and I promise you that you probably don't know him as well as he knows you, because we have a lot of people who are scuffling and trying to figure out, what is life? What is air? What is happening? What's going on? And a lot of us are still trying to figure that out. But he knows all about you. He knows about you, and we said this last week, and this is still true, hasn't changed. He knew about you before you were conceived. He knew about you before you were born. He knew all about you from the beginning of time as we know it and understand it. The written time that's referred to in the Bible. In the beginning was not God's beginning. In the beginning refers to our beginning of human existence. Because that's our reference point in Genesis chapter 1. But the beginning was not where God was. He was already present. He was already there. He is an eternal God. An eternal God, now again, that goes back to what the psalmist asked the question. Why would anybody care about us? And the fact of the matter is he cares about us because he just did what he did. He created us. He made us. He loves his creation, meaning us, and knows all about you. So let's continue. What we try to do, because of our human nature, we have to try to figure out ways to describe God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, all those things we just talked about, with human terms. Because that's all we have to hang on to. We're human beings. We are taught by human beings. We went to school and were taught by teachers who are human beings. We have human reasoning and human understanding. We had to learn about this thing about God and eternity and all that good stuff. But the term that we are using to describe those things, to make sure that we're putting human characteristics on God for greater understanding, is anthropomorphism. That's that word... In the middle of page one, in bold lettering, anthropomorphism. And it's okay to use anthropomorphism to be able to describe who God is. Why? Because we're human beings. We have limitations as to what we can understand. How in the world can we describe an eternal God? Not sure you can. You can give it a try. But ultimately, you can't really describe it. You can only go by the fact that eternity is without end. It's without beginning and without end. And we can't conceptualize that, other than just by using the English language. Anthropomorphism is the term. So go back to Proverbs 15.3 real quick. This is the brief review I was talking about, because we're going to lunge ahead after this. With what anthropomorphic feature does Proverbs 15.3 describe God? And verse, if I'm waiting for you to get there, if you're not there yet. Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now, that's very similar to 
another verse that just came to mind that Lynn and I were talking about yesterday about how, he, about, remember how God allows things to happen in your life. He allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. But here we're talking about rain, of course, which we can understand because we see that. We don't know that there's rain, there's snow, there's weather. And now we're talking about giving God characteristics of having eyes everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Well, as an eternal God, we don't really have any way of connecting that with God except through our own human reasoning, because God is spirit. That's what we're taught. God is spirit. But we imagine God being able to see everything understand everything, know what everything is happening all over the world today. You know, it's amazing how much you can know and understand about what's going on in the world today just by turning the channel on your TV. You know, we've got Discovery Channel, we've got National Geographic, we've got all these different programs that are on that show you different parts of the world and you never have to leave your living room. You never have to do a thing. The technology we have today to communicate with people all over the world through social media is unbelievable. And yet we can do it. And you understand that God surpasses all of that by a million times because he knows everything that's going on. He sees everyone. He recognizes everyone. Oh, yes, that's this person, this person, this person. All over the world. Sees everything. Now, we're giving him the characteristics of what? Eyesight in this passage. And being able to see things is very important, isn't it? When you see things, that creates for us the ability to understand. It creates the ability for us to have wisdom and understanding. But God already has all of that. He's already aware of all of that. Okay. So that's a human characteristic that we're talking about. Now go back to John 4.24, and I want to make sure that I'm saying go back. I apologize. Go to John 4.24, because we want to hit the, emphasize once again the importance that even though we are giving God these anthropomorphic characteristics, he is still a spirit. He is still who he is. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We've got John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, at the bottom of page one, this accurately describes who God is. He doesn't have eyes or arms or ears in the same way we have eyes, arms, and ears. We just have to have some way of understanding him and assigning characteristics to him that help us relate really helps. And of course, when we say that he has his eye on you, this is part of our understanding about you're asking the question, if God is aware, the simple answer is yes, of course he's aware. He sees everything. Amen? He sees everything. You ever try to hide from God? You can't, but some of us still try to do it anyway. Why is that? Pardon me? Well, you're fooling yourself, but why are we hiding? 
shame, guilt. You were going to. Mm-hmm. Right. We have the limitations. That's right. That's right. And we know when we've done something wrong. That's the only reason why you're hiding. If you know you've done something wrong, and you know it goes against God's law, His rule, His is something sinful, the natural tendency is for you to cower in shame. You're guilty. You understand that. You actually are making a conceptualization of God's holiness versus your sin, which is actually very good. But now we need to take that hiding and turn it into what? Repentance and seeking him and asking for forgiveness and going to him. Guess what? That's the very nature of any person who accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Before there can be salvation, there must be acknowledgement of sin. There must be a desire to repent from sin. And there must be a desire to ask for forgiveness. That's all wrapped up in the plan of salvation. A person truly seeking Jesus Christ and knowing that you can't do it on your own. You need Christ to help you along. Go ahead. Sure. Understood. And that's just acknowledging who we are, though, isn't it? Yes, Ed. Genesis 3. You want to read that real quick, then? Yes, sir. Um, Genesis 3, 9. 3, 8. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's, that's, that's the perfect demonstration of how we... Because of our sin and because our eyes are open to sin, where we didn't have that knowledge before until that point, we hide. We want to hide. Okay. Great example, Ed. Thanks for mentioning that. I don't see anything, do you? Yeah. God gave him a chance. He said, he said, have you done this? He didn't say, you know. Yeah. He didn't belly up and say, Lord, I'm sorry. He blamed the woman that he gave to her. Yes, we know. That's the that's part of the story. The now, tendency. Yeah. That we know of. It wasn't recorded. You're right. Well, if it's not recorded, he better stop right there. That's right. 
You're exactly right. Go to Isaiah 49:15 for me, please. Isaiah 49:15. This was a verse that we read last week, 15 and 16. Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And we mentioned last week in that verse that a woman who is bearing a child doesn't forget about her child. That child is joined to her after birth at the hip, virtually. There is no separation. But even God is making the comparison, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He's saying his way of knowing and remembering you surpasses even that. Just giving a human characteristic to it. And then verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And we talked about the symbolism of being engraved on the hand, which is a mark that states permanence. It's a permanence. It's a pledge. It's a bond that's being represented by this engraving. Isaiah uses the picture of engraving on God's palms because in ancient Eastern culture, the form, this form of tattoo would be a familiar image. And in our current culture, tattoos are a familiar image too. Butterflies, boyfriends' names, Bible verses, and all sorts of images are tattooed on arms and ankles. Whether or not you agree with the practice, think about what it represents. And so with that in mind, we're going to divert and have a nice little lesson You ready for this? A common question. Is it a sin to get a tattoo? Is it a sin to get a tattoo? Will you do the honors? This is a lesson to pass out. Yeah, if you can. (laughs) Is it a sin to get a tattoo? Now, this question is being offered for a couple of reasons. Understanding that we, remember when we had the discussion a couple of weeks ago about making sure that even though people in modern day have this texting issue where they're abbreviating and they don't use full words and they may not even use the correct grammar, you as an elder person are not to correct them about their grammar if they're making a sincere effort to reach out to you and be discipled and saying thank you to you. In other words, you're not going to be the legislator of how this person communicates with you. Now, here's part two of this. There are a lot of people that we know that have tattoos. There are a lot of people that we know have tattoos for different reasons. Some of those people have tattoos where they regret they got the tattoo. Because they'll put somebody's name on their arm and, you know, it might have been Mabel and it should have been Joan or something. Or whatever it is. But that tattoo is still there. But now we're going to have a brief discussion about how we, as people of the Lord people who are serving the Lord, to minister to somebody and talk about tattoos. And I thought this would be a good... Yes. Well, you're exactly right.
Well, that's what we're going to talk about right now. Because we're going to cover a lot of ground with this. And we may, it may take the rest of the class to do this. So please hang on to this handout. This handout is for reference. It's coming around right now. Big, uh, Big Jim's passing them out. But I want to make sure that, and it says right at the top of the handout, for those of you who have it, please read the entire post before forming a conclusion. Because a lot of us have been taught stuff. We've got to be careful about what we've been taught. We had another example yesterday that we need to understand also, too. This is a slight veering while Jim is passing stuff out. Jesus teaches us to love everybody. Amen? Everybody. Wherever they come from, wherever their background is, whatever they're doing, if you are not doing that, you are not a disciple of Christ. Because you're going against what he's teaching. Now, this applies to people who are straight and gay. This applies to everybody and every background and every person we're talking about. Everyone. Those who have formed opinions ahead of time about who those people are need to go back and look at what Jesus teaches. And if you want material about that, I'll bring that to class too. Because there is scripture that supports that very teaching. Love everyone. We as a people will judge openly sometimes, but we need to be doing it quietly. And not expressing your opinions about things. Because how, for example, is a person who is gay going to have an understanding about Jesus if you're pushing them away? Okay? So as disciples, and this class is all about discipleship and teaching discipleship, along with teaching material, of course. But now we're going to talk about, is it a sin to get a tattoo? Many of us have been taught, based upon what Scripture says, that it is a sin to get a tattoo. And I shared with you that my daughter got a tattoo last week. All of Jeremiah 29:11 is on my daughter's lower back, the entire verse, which I just black out just thinking about that because I wouldn't want to... <laughs> that's a lot of words in a small, relatively small space. But that's what she did. You know why? She was convicted to do it at a very young age. When I say young age, you know, 18 but young enough because she understood what she was being taught about God's goodness and about the plans that God has for each and every one of us. And you need to read the whole context of that verse, but that's a great verse. But now let's look at this. Yes. Sure. Yeah. So let's look at this. That's why we're talking about this today. The most valuable disciple of Jesus Christ is an educated one. You need to be understanding about what Scripture does say and what it does refer to and understand that a lot of Scripture is brought up based upon contextual information, which a lot of us forget. Who else had their hand up? Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, we, yeah, we, we, oh, absolutely. Now, everybody remember what y'all just said now. Take this information for what it's worth. You're just saying we shouldn't be judging. We shouldn't be talking about these things. We shouldn't be, you remember this. Because there's going to come a point, and my wife is already experiencing it at her job. We won't, we won't get into that today. Where, you know, those lines are being drawn, but yet we still have to come back and say, well, what does Jesus teach? All right, introductory matters. Top of the handout, page one. There are a few questions that must be answered when dealing with a question like this. We must be careful not to create laws that God has not created or ignore laws that God has established. That was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They created laws that were not in the law as a means, frankly, of just being judgmental and keeping themselves in authority. So we understand that we're not, and what does it say at the back of the Bible too? Changing the law, taking one word out, putting one word in, no, no, no. Don't do it. So some questions to consider are as follows. Number one, does the New Testament, does the New Testament specifically forbid Christians from getting a tattoo? That's question number one. Question number two, are certain moral principles violated through getting a tattoo? Question number three, is there any situation where a tattoo would be sinful? Those are all three great questions. And they're questions that we need to be asking and looking at, and we're looking at this practice. And we need to look at this practice because, let's face it, folks, there's a lot of folks you know, I don't have to tell you, that have tattoos. So if you are a hardline legalist, you'll probably take the position, well, hell, they're going to hell anyway. Well, that wouldn't be the right way to approach that, would it? Of course not. So we're going to eliminate that part of the conversation altogether. And now we'll move forward. Arguments reviewed. There are many arguments that people use against tattoos. Some of these arguments are more valid than others. These arguments will be reviewed here. Argument number one. Leviticus 19.28 forbids Christians from getting tattoos. Well, let's go to Leviticus 19.28. Leviticus 19.28. The verse by itself says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I don't know what King James says. It may say the same thing or something close. Okay. Fair enough. All right. First off, this section of Scripture also forbids the trimming the sides of one's hair and shaping a beard. To be consistent, one would have to follow all of these commands. However... Just because one is inconsistent does not always negate their argument. So we need to understand that there are things that are being established in this passage that talked about certain practices relevant to that time. Second, the Christian is not under the old law. The old law was given to Israel for a specific purpose. The old law was designed to lead one to Christ, and once Jesus came, it was no longer needed. 
Now, we're just making arguments here. I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. But if you're going to make a, a conviction about something, have Scripture to support what you're saying in its context and its totality. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Clearly we know that Jesus is coming established with us a new covenant. Amen? That's part of what we've been taught. We understand that. There's a new covenant. Jesus said he was not coming to change the law, but to fulfill it. It's all in him. So if Jesus is saying he's the Sabbath, that means basically the Sabbath is under his control. The old law and now is now the new law under his control. It's all under Jesus. It's all on him. But look at what it says here in Galatians 3. I need to get there myself. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Listen to that word captive. The old law, we were held captive. It was very strict. It was very regimented. There were very specific things we had to do under the old law in order to have sin forgiven by God in the form of blood animal sacrifices. And it was a constant thing, and it was all the time. And it had to deal, deal with, you had to do blood animal sacrifices if you sin knowingly or unknowingly. Very involved. So now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Do you understand something? Without Jesus Christ, you're not justified. Under the old law, your justification came because you were followed these specific rules that were given, and they were given to the nation of Israel. That's the only way they could be justified. Verse 25, now that faith has come, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And let's read verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So how are we justified? Through faith. That's it. That takes the old law and wraps it all up in just believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's it. That's all you have to be concerned about. And that, that, that passage is actually on your handout in the italics right underneath where I just said to go. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Trying to prove that tattoos are a sin from this Old Testament law would be as, now this is the writer saying this, but I have to agree with him. It would be as incorrect as requiring one to perform animal sacrifice. That's the old law. None of us have to practice animal sacrifice anymore, amen? We don't have to do that. If we get, a, if we get an animal and we cook it and kill it, we're going to eat it. Because that's what we do. But it's not the old law that we're doing it. We're doing it because we're going to eat. So we can't apply one thing 
and also say it applies to the other thing here. We have to look at it consistently for what it is. This was a God-ordained law for a specific purpose at one time, but the Christian is not under that law today. So that answers argument number one, I hope. Any questions about that? We have to look at it for what it is for context purposes. Argument number two. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says our bodies are a temple. Thus getting a tattoo would be defiling the temple of the God. Is this true? Go to 1 Corinthians 6.19. What does it say? Let's take a look. Now we're, not, now, we're not changing any verses. Amen? We're not changing what Scripture's saying. We're reading what Scripture's saying, and we're looking at it according to the proper context. I have said this over and over and over again. Some of us Christians, you know, sometimes memorizing Bible verses can be a blessing and also a curse. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes we memorize a verse but we don't necessarily memorize it for the purpose of using the complete context. We use it just for the one verse. The one, and look, anybody can use a verse. You know, Satan knows Bible verses, amen? Okay? And we'll use those verses to twist things around. That's exactly how Eve got deceived in the Garden of Eden. By looking at God's Word. The context of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 is a command for the Christian to not participate in sexual immorality. Note the surrounding verses. Start with verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. What have we been talking about here? Just all, all we've been talking about. Sex. That's all we're talking about. We're talking about sexual immorality. Yes. Correct. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. All right. Let's continue. But again, look at the context here. We're talking about sexual immorality. So it says, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, you see the problem here. There's not one mention of tattooing in this passage. Not one. The context, verses 16 through 20, is talking about fleeing from sexual immorality. Because as Faith pointed out, your body is a temple. Because they're referring back to, what, the old law, and understanding this for the context of all the people who are being given this information. Because that's what they can relate relate to, the old law. That's what was presented to them. This whole thing about Jesus is a new thing. It's a new teaching. You had your hand up. Uh, yeah, 
Yes. Yes. It's the, first, it's the first part of Matthew 4 where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, the 40 days of temptation, and Satan was there talking to him, and, he was, and Satan was actually using God's word. Well, we call them verses here. They were not written verses then, but it's still God's word that he's referring to. That's right. That's a great point. You had your hand up. I'm sorry. I was just saying, sometimes for me, with all of that being said, when I think the question is how, where are we in relation to are you still in your old self? Did you allow someone to tie you to ah. That's right. It's a matter of personal conviction, isn't it? That's where we have to leave it. You ain't got to like tattoos. I'm not telling you to go out and get a tattoo today if you don't want to get a tattoo. That's, that's what I'm, I want to make sure. I'm giving you this information for one purpose and one purpose only. If you are going to disciple someone, do it based upon what Scripture says and don't take Scriptures out of context in the process of your doing so. Just be educated about it. I'm giving you information. All right, I got Charles, and I'll come back over here. Because I want to try and get to a little bit more before we get out of here. Yep. We listened to a sermon about wearing a T-shirt. What? A T-shirt. A T-shirt? various writing on the front or back. Okay. That was a sermon? Okay. So if someone is going to have a tattoo, he should be willing to suffer the consequences of it. Okay. Well, there's actually, okay. You, yeah, what would be the consequence? So we need to also, what you're saying is, prepare the person. Now, are you sure you want to get a tattoo? Do you want to get a tattoo in this location? And why are you getting it? Because, again, there's a conviction that takes place with that. So I see we're not going to finish this. So we're going to, you're going to have to hang on to your tattoo memos and, and, and bring those next time. Because we have a whole other side of the page to get to. But I want to cover one other thing here, too. The passage, the entire passage of uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 20 are on the bottom of the handout as well, too. It's talking about 
the body being a temple of the Holy Spirit is highlighted, but we need to understand that we must, we must, we must use context when we're looking at these passages. Now, in this world, of course, in this domain, in this realm, you're free to do to your body whatever you want to. The world uh, does not judge you because you decide to get a tattoo or not. We are in this domain with those same people. But what we do not want to be is a stumbling block to any person who's in this realm, just like us, teaching them about Jesus Christ. Go ahead. Well, I think sometimes we forget when we're reading scripture. Yeah. When those pagans converted, a lot of them had that. Had tattoos. Of course. They wouldn't have come. You had, they were doing exactly what we're talking about. They were open to teaching the love of Jesus Christ. This applies to all of us dealing with people, not just with tattoos, but people who are gay. And people who are gay and, you know what? Things, they are in this human realm just like we are. They have their own perspective of life. They have their own form of morality that's all over the place. But that doesn't mean that because they say that they're gay that we go, "Uh uh-uh, I can't talk to you. Because that's foolish. It's foolish. It's not something that we should ever be doing. We must, we must, we must still love everyone as Christ loved them. If we truly believe, if we look at what Scripture says where God or Jesus desires for every person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, that means everybody. And that, there's no exclusion to that, no matter where they are right now in their faith, their lack of faith, their understanding, their sexual preferences, all those things, tattoos, whatever it is, we're supposed to love everybody. So we need to put aside our personal biases. Amen? Our personal biases... Because just because you're loving that person does not mean you have to do exactly what they do. It means that you merely are showing the love of Christ in your demeanor. Understand something. If you are gay today, a lot of people have formed their lines. And some who even don't know the Lord have formed their lines. So it's very difficult for them to be considered inclusive. That's why we have this whole thing about Inclusion, diversity, inclusion at work. Because we shouldn't be discriminating. If anything, the the things that we see in the workplace today are actually beneficial for Jesus Christ. If you're talking about inclusion, if you're talking about bringing everybody to the table, that's actually a welcoming statement. And it's a welcoming statement for you to show the love of the gospel. Sometimes God does things that you don't even realize until you think about it. It's a good thing. It's actually showing you can treat a person who doesn't know the Lord the same way as you treat a person who does know the Lord. Because that's what you should be doing. There's still people. You still talk to folks. All right, we're going to pick up with this next week. But I hope that this gets you thinking, disciples. This gets you thinking. There's no heresy being taught here. 
This is the way we need to look at life in general now. If you're talking about being real Christians and not hiding somewhere in a church with legalism saying, well, we're going to take our stand and this is how we're going to do things, and you're not getting out in the world and talking to people, then what are you doing for the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ? We're all liberals? Okay, you're, you're scaring me. You're scaring me a lot. We have to be sensitive to what Jesus Christ is teaching. If he's teaching us to love everyone, then love everyone. You know, some people have tattoos on their necks. They're very visible. Tattoos on their arms. You saw the picture here in the hand. The picture is a great picture. Picture of a guy who's got tattoos on his hands. He's wearing a business suit. Now, you have to understand that that's the world we live in today. Be prepared for that. Know what you're teaching. Know what the understanding is. Yeah. Right. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're going to close out. I think we are done. So let's uh, look to the Lord with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us to get together and have this conversation. Two conversations today that are mind, that we need to be mindful of. What does Scripture say about how we are to minister to others? And what does Scripture say when it comes to your very presence in our lives? Lord, we thank you that you do teach us. You do give us understanding. We know that you're always present. And Lord, with that knowledge now, help us as we understand more about Scripture and how we minister and disciple other people. We thank you for those lessons. We thank you for this introduction this week, and we will carry it through next week, Lord, Lord willing. And we just thank you now for the upcoming message and the speaker, and we give you praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you. We will see you next time.